Let's get our Bibles out this morning. We're in the book of Philippians as the children are heading out. That was almost the quietest I've ever heard them leave, but there we go. Philippians chapter 4. Getting to last chapter here, Philippians. We preached our way through it. I hope that you've enjoyed the journey so far. Paul in chains, having joy, loving the people of God, allowing the Holy Spirit to flow through him, not only in pouring out letters to strengthen their theology and their faith in his absence because he's going to be martyred. He knows this at some point. And uh, this morning we are catching up with Paul here in chapter 4. I'm going to read you verses 1 through 5, and we're going to watch the joy continue to bubble through this man and bless people and even bless us this morning. So, Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for this epistle of joy uh, given to us by a man that you snatched out of the muck and the mire and turned into uh, your greatest tool of evangelism for the Gentile churches. Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to flow in our service here, that our hearts being prepared for the word, we would able to take in these principles, Lord, that we wouldn't just be hearers only, but doers of the word. That we could live on Monday what we heard on Sunday. We ask it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, True companion, I ask you also, help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. So a lot of moving pieces here, a lot of topics covered, some interesting Uh, things covered as Paul is uh, ministering to the church here. He starts off taking an opportunity to tell the Philippians just how he feels about them. We're going to unpack verse 1 in just a minute, but I want to say this before I do. We should tell people how we really feel about them. Now, first service service was like, "You, you don't know how we feel about you, so you might know. Listen, I'm talking about the good things we feel about people. Man, if we got bad attitudes, we need to work those out before the Lord. If we have correction for someone, we need to do it in love. But we need to tell people how we feel about them. Why? Because a lot of times we're like, man, I love that person, or I love this guy, you know, and, and oh, I feel this way about this person. But they don't know how you feel. In fact, look at your spouse this morning. They don't know how you feel about certain things about them. I remember my wife and I were married... 30 years, and this was a while ago, I said, I, I thought this about her, and she said, wow, I never, I never knew you felt that way, and I looked at her, really? And I thought, you know, well, I never said it out loud, why would she know? But then, as I communicated, I saw that it was a blessing to her. We got to tell people that we love them. We got to tell people we appreciate them. We got to tell people when we miss them, amen? Come on, some of you won't even look at me right now. Uh, but we have got to start sharing how we feel about each other because it's an encouragement. When we see somebody we love, hey, Jesse, this morning, I love you, buddy. I'm glad you're here this morning, amen. Right? Just tell somebody. What does it cost us to say, hey, I missed you. I love you. I'm glad you're here. 
All right, so we'll move on. Now, I'm going to unpack verse 1 here. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, the first thing he does is he, he's genuinely expressing that, what, their beloved, he loves them. He's telling them, you are my beloved brethren. Now, understand when Paul says this, it's genuine. Have you ever heard somebody tell you something and you knew they really didn't mean it? Man, and you could smell it a mile away, and they're like, well, I really just appreciate you. And you're thinking, man, you wouldn't spit on me to put me out if I was on fire. I know you, you really don't like me that much, but you just obligatory have to say something nice to me right now. And so I feel it's not genuine. Yet when somebody says something to us that's genuine, and you look in their eyes and you see they really feel that way, what a blessing it is for someone to say, I love you. My beloved brethren. So he wants the Philippians to know, I love you guys. And they get it, and they feel it, and they reciprocate back to him that love. Then he basically says, hey, I miss you, whom I long to see. There's one thing, you know, to say that you love somebody, but then never make any time to spend with them. Now, I know we're all busy, but we've got to make time for each other. We've got to make time to fellowship. We were joking this morning about the only time people say they love you and they miss you is at the funeral, right? then it's too late. Now, I mean, you know, oh, I missed you. I loved you. You were wonderful. They can't hear you. We need to express that, you know, before we go home to be with the Lord. My beloved brethren whom I long to see. Paul, again, so sincere. He didn't want to be locked up. He didn't want to be standing before these Roman leaders. He didn't want to be in chains. He would rather be with the churches. And so he says, I love you, and I long to see you. He continues here using this opportunity to show them how he feels about them. He says, you are my joy and my crown. It's powerful, isn't it? Paul's saying, you're the, you're the best part of my life. You're the, you're the fruit of my ministry. You're the, you know, the reason I get up in the morning. You are my joy and my crown. See, he understood that his ministry was not about you know, building a big name for him or writing a lot of books in Scripture or being the greatest apostle that ever lived. His ministry was all about people. And that's why he said to people, you're my joy. You know what? You're my crown. You're my greatest achievement. You ever look at your children and just, you know, maybe when they're babies and you're like, wow, look what we made. Anybody, anybody have children, seen pictures? You're right. And I mean, I mean, when they're young like that, it's easier to say. When they get to be teenagers, you just say, what have we done? <laughs> no, the little baby, look what we made. My crown, my joy, my, the fruit of my loins, the fruit of my, my faith here produced and poured into another human being. Beautiful thing that he expresses. And then again, genuine and sincere. He, he, he fills out what he's saying here. He kind of just brings it in for landing by saying to them, stand firm in the Lord. Why? Because I love you, because I miss you, because you are the best part of my ministry, the fruit that's been produced in you. So guys, when I'm gone, and Paul knew he was going to be gone, I realize this guy is full of joy and he's on his way to be martyred. That's enough to rob joy from anybody. Amen. Just being on the way to work sometimes is enough to suck the joy out of you, right? This guy was headed for execution. Anybody feeling this? Yeah, he's got all this joy and all this love for the people of God. And he's basically saying, look, I'm not going to be here forever, but when I'm gone, stand in the faith. Continue to serve God. Continue to love Jesus. Continue to love one another. Continue to fulfill your call. Amen. Come on, church. Wake up this morning. Oh, my Lord, we need the Holy Ghost jumper cables. 
Do you wear yourself out in worship? You've got nothing left now. So Paul expresses how he feels. We should express how we feel. We should tell each other how we feel about each other. Verse 2 and 3 shifts gears again. Remember, I said we're covering a lot of topics. This one's kind of interesting. He says, I urge Eudia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. What's implicit in that statement is here is what's going on behind the curtain is these two ladies were in a fight with each other. They're in conflict with each other. We had us a Holy Ghost Bible brawl within the church. Yudia and Syntyche were in open conflict with each other. And Paul addresses it from, a, you know, he's an apostle. He has authority over the church to bring correction. And he says, you know what, there's a rift in the Philippian church here. That what Yudia and Syntyche, they're, they're having a fight here. They're having no small disagreement. And he says, you know, urge them to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, understand something here. You got two ladies Uh, who are at odds with each other, and it's not just something that's behind the scenes. You know, it's bad enough when we have conflict behind the scenes, but when it spills out into public, especially in the church, it gets ugly real fast, doesn't it? Have you ever been maybe at a job, maybe at a church, maybe in the neighborhood, and some kind of conflict that should have stayed between the two people now spills out into the public arena? It's ugly, and it's not something that we need, you know, to see happening in the church here, but public conflict is messy, and here's why it's bad for the body of Christ, because whether we like it or not, it forces everyone to pick a side. Do you realize that? When we let our conflict spill out into public, when we let our conflict spill out into our families, we force everyone to pick a side. Most people ain't Sweden. They're not neutral. They're going to choose a team, even in the body of Christ. And when this stuff pops out, and here these two ladies uh, in public had squared off, and, and, you know, these Philippian ladies were in a public fight. It's almost like, you know, in the theater of my mind, I see it like this way. In this corner, Sister Sandpaper, weighing in at none of your business. She's judgmental, abrasive, and always has to be right. The challenger in this corner, Sister Hulamahai. She's uptight, self-righteous. She's relentless in finding fault in other people, and she gossips about everyone. Ding, ding, let's get ready to embarrass the church. That was a lot funnier than you guys let on. But that's exactly what's happening there. They're squaring off. People are choosing sides. They're putting the battle in array, and now they're going to embarrass the church. I'm crying too. So it's not a good thing, and Paul addresses it. Now, this is a direct example of gentle yet firm apostolic correction. Remember, the leadership of the church not only has a right to correct the church, but a duty to correct the church. So Paul's correcting these two ladies. He's he's urging them to do something. Uh, We're going to see that he he calls them to live in harmony. We're going to talk about that in a second. But I just want to point out to the fact that he does correct them. And understand, well, why didn't he just pull them aside and talk to them? Listen, sometimes things done in public need to get corrected in public. If you want to bring it out into the public and then you get corrected in public, don't have an attitude. Well, they should have just been courteous and pulled me aside and gently told me, and then I wouldn't have listened to them. Yeah, we know. But Paul corrects it. He corrects it in public. He corrects it in Scripture. It's part of God's Word forever. 
And so the point is here that none of us are beyond correction. If we think, well, I'm mature, I'm older, I'm this, I'm that, I've been around for a long time, nobody has the right to correct me. You're in a dangerous spot. All of us need correction. Look, and if you don't have somebody that could stick their finger in your face and say, hey, buddy, you better get right because you're, you're wrong right now and you're on a dangerous path. If, if you don't have anybody in your life like that, then you are in a dangerous spot. Well, I don't take correction from anybody. Have you heard people say things like that? Maybe there's times we felt like that. Who are they to correct me? Woo! Careful. Careful. None of us are beyond correction. This is what people in leadership in our government and in our nation need to understand. Nobody's above the law. There are certain people who think they're above the law. Oh, all you guys got to follow the law and you got to follow your taxes and you got to do this and stop at the stop sign and that, but we can do whatever we want and we won't even be held accountable. Anybody awake? So none of us are beyond correction. Number two, the second thing we get from Paul's, you know, opportunity here of trying to set this stuff in order is that our strength is in our unity. Say unity. Unity is something that we need in the church. What makes the church powerful is that we're united. It's not that we're united on our preferences and our opinions and our denominational stances. We're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But unity is what gives us power. We're unified over Jesus Christ. We're unified over being saved by faith through grace. We're unified over the blood of the Lamb. Come on. That's what gives us unity. Amen. Now, there are two spirits that have always been operating in the church that make it really hard to maintain unity. The first is the spirit of division. Say division. And the second is the spirit of independence. Say independence. So we have division and independence, and both of them are spiritual things. Let's talk about the spirit of division. We see division in the church because the church is willing to divide itself over almost anything. We're divided into denominations. We're divided into theological camps. We're divided into different expressions of worship. Sadly, we're even divided by culture and ethnicity. It's been said before that the most segregated time in America is Sunday morning when it's time to worship. And that shouldn't be. Oh, everybody's quiet now. Don't get quiet on me. Now I'll start throwing stuff because you're going to say amen because I'm preaching the truth. Amen. We shouldn't divide ourselves over culture. We shouldn't divide ourselves over, well, you know, we don't fit in this church, and I don't fit in that church, and this is, look, there's no black church, white church, Spanish church, Chinese church. There's just the church. Amen? And if if you walk into a church and feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here, man, that's not right. Take a look around this morning, please. Move your heads. Take a look around this morning. Look at the beautiful diversity here. You're not looking. Some of you are still looking at me. Take a look. This is what heaven looks like. This is what heaven looks like. They're not going to say, oh, Leonardo, you're here. Come on. We got little Italy. We're going to put you in the Italian section down here. They got good mozzarella. It's going to be nice. No, everybody, we're part of the family of God. So this spirit of division it, it, it destroys the power of the church. Why? Because our strength is in our unity. Do you know why the United States is the single most powerful military, single most powerful economy, the only standing superpower left? Because our states are still united. The more we become 
you know, we have disunity and we're not united and the coast are going crazy and you got California and New Yorkistan and everything caught in the middle. Come on, I'm just telling the truth in church. Amen. And then what, what is that? That's the devil trying to break our unity because if we're all fragmented, we're not strong anymore. And there's plenty of nations out there that can come in and topple us. It's the same thing in the church. We can't be fragmented. We can't be divided. We have to be unified in Jesus Christ. So we looked at division. Let's talk about in independence. Now, certainly the independent spirit will play a part in why we divide ourselves in the first place. Well, you know, I don't like that style of worship, so I'm not worshiping with you. We're going to go over here where we worship this way. Well, I don't like that style of preaching. or uh, You know, we don't like... Uh, this and, and there's always something, well, the theology, your theology is obviously wrong on, on eschatology in the end times. And, you know, we don't agree on the seventh horde and the third beast and the, who rose from the sea. And so we've got to split. We'll divide ourselves over anything. See, it's that divisive spirit uh, is, is influenced by a spirit of independence. It goes a little deeper because there are people who are independent even within uh, factions of the church that claim to be united within the Pentecostal circles, within the Baptist circles, within the evangelical circles. You have people who can't fall in line. They've got to be individuals and do their own thing and buck against leadership. And that's a spirit of independence. Look, if you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, consider yourself blessed. But if you've been around the block a little bit and seen churches and been here and there and everywhere, you know what I'm talking about right now. Where whatever church you go to, excuse me, there are always people that can't fall in line with leadership. The enemy aggressively attempts to do this, to sow the tares in the body of Christ. Why? Because if he can fragment even parts of the body that say they have unity, he further, uh, you know, erodes the power and the strength we should have in Jesus Christ. He does this by taking individual believers and sowing into them stubborn, rebellious, contentious, independent attitudes. Now, don't look at anybody right now. Don't raise your hand. This is what the enemy does. And these people range from slightly difficult. Ever met some slightly difficult people? I mean, they eventually listen, but they got to give you a hard time. When anyone have children, and you have that one slightly difficult child, you know, they just can't, you know, they, let's go, it's time to go. Dragging their feet, kicking, complaining. Don't raise your hand. And they're slightly difficult. Then you got people who are just, they're unsubmissive. Whatever you tell them to do, they got to question it. They got to find an excuse or they got to say, I, I'm not doing it. And then you, on, the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are downright subversive. They sit in churches and they want to destroy the leadership. They want to split the church. They want to attack the body. They want to, you know... And I've seen it so many times. In, in fact, if you're paying attention, it's gone on in the Hudson Valley during the COVID period that churches have had people rise up within them and split the church and take the church away from the God-ordained leadership that was running the church. And there again, if you don't know what I'm talking about, God bless you. It's good. Sometimes it's good to just stay, you know, naive about some of these things. But I call these three groups of people, the slightly difficult, the unsubmissive, and the subversive, I call them the cats, the mules, and the bulls. Cats just don't like to listen. You say something to a cat, it just kind of blinks at you. You see them, they sit there. 
And then you got the bulls. No, I mean, the, you got the mules. No matter what you say, they dig their heels in and they fight you all the way. And then you got the bull, who's the proverbial bull in the china shop, who makes a big mess. Pray for the church of Jesus Christ. Pray about the cats, the mules, and the bulls. Pray that God gives wisdom to leadership so that we can protect the unity have because we need this unity to stand as a united front against the darkness. Look, the church is not going to be successful if it's fragmented. And so those two spirits, I'm, I'm digging into these things. They're deep things that you and I need to understand. So when we see division, we nip it in the bud. When we see independence, even in ourselves, we nip it in the bud. That we learn to be team players. And it's not about I, 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 and me, me, me. It's about the body of Christ and doing our part in it. So to the thunderous applause of verse 2, I will move into verse 3. Listen to this. Indeed, true companion, I urge you also, help these women. So the ladies, are, <laughs> the ladies are in a fight here, and Paul's appealing to the leadership to help these women who I've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. So these are not novices. These are not people that are on the fringe. They're, you know, they're solid Christians who have worked alongside of Paul. He says, together with Clement, as well as all the rest of my fellow workers. So there again, this rift is in the leadership structure of the church, and it needs to be healed by the leadership structure of the church, whose names are in the book of life. So let's take a look at uh, what's going on here. The two ladies who are at odds with each other are mentioned by name in Scripture. Do you realize that? How many would like your name mentioned in Scripture for starting trouble in the church? You know... (laughs) You run into Syntyche in heaven. Oh, who are you? Oh, I'm Syntyche. I'm mentioned in the Bible. Oh, yeah, what did you do? Never mind. <laughs> I find it so interesting, Lewis, that God mentions both of their names in his word, but he doesn't say what their issue is. He mentions their names, but he doesn't tell us what they're fighting about. You know what that suggests to me? The things that we fight about and the things that break our unity are so meaningless and so petty, they're not even worth mentioning. That's the truth. The things we fight about are not worth, God's like, I'm not putting that in the Bible. I'll I'll, I'll name these two, you know. Down goes Frazier. You know, they're going to fight. Yeah, let's, well, I'll name the ladies, but, you know, I'm not going to tell you what they're fighting about. You know why else he didn't do it? Because, you know, we would look at the thing and go, well, I'm on her side. Oh, no, 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 no. She's wrong. I'm on her side. And the fight would continue. That's just human nature. So, you know, the things we fight about are so petty. How many have been married for more than five minutes? How many will be honest and say the things you're usually fighting about are the stupidest things ever? Why aren't you raising your hand? Come on. She just pointed at me. She didn't raise her hand. But it's like the things married people fight about. You know, the dust ruffle or the, the order of the pillows on the bed or stuff I didn't even know existed. Dust ruffle. Why? You knock my sconce over. I don't even know what that is. So we fight about silly things, and we bring division upon ourselves over silly things. And the ladies are mentioned, but the issue is not mentioned. Paul does instruct the leadership that he has in place there 
to intervene. Why? To restore the unity that's in jeopardy. See, the unity is the most important thing. Not what the fight's about, not who's right or wrong, not which team you chose to be on. No, restoring the unity. And it's an important skill, a leadership skill, for leaders to be able to broker peace and facilitate forgiveness and encourage mutual respect and to just restore the unity when it's in jeopardy. You know, there's people who think, well, Pastor, why did you have to get involved in that situation? Why did you have to correct that? Why did you have to bring both of them into your office? Just let them, you know, let them say, no, there's something at stake that is so vital. That leader, if you're not willing to confront and you're not willing to, you know, be a force for, you know, brokering peace, then you're you're not leadership material. Oh, I don't do conflict. I hear people, I don't do conflict. I'm not, no, that's not me. I'll just, you know, I'll just ignore it till everyone passes away of a natural death. No, he can't do that. By that time, the, 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 the wake of damage that's been done is just, it, it's too much. It's cost us too much. So understand Paul's an apostle. He's exercising his apostolic authority. He's encouraging the leadership in the church to jump in and help these ladies, you know, uh, get, you know, to the place where they can be in harmony again. And that's what he's saying. I I want you guys to live in harmony. And that's an important thing for us to understand. He he intervenes there uh, because he wants to restore the harmony. That word harmony literally means one mind. We need to have one mind in the church. Any team that doesn't have one mind is not going to perform well on the field. Any military unit that doesn't have one mind is not going to be successful on the battlefield. Any church that doesn't have one mind is going to be all over the place and produce very little fruit. We need to have one mind. Say one mind. mind. Whose mind is it? Is it pastor's mind? Is it the pastor's wife? Is it the board's mind? Is it Sister Sandpaper's mind? No, it's the mind of Christ. We've got to have the mind of Christ. See, leaders who think, you, you know, I'm the leader, you got to do what I want to do. Man, you, you're missing it as a leader. You're going to lead people into the ditch. I don't get to do what I want to do. I get to do what uh, Jesus wants me to do, amen. People say, you should preach on this next. I'm like, talk to the Holy Spirit. He tells me what to preach next, amen. I don't get to preach what I want, do what I want, say what I want. The, the higher you go up in the, the structure of leadership in the church, the shorter the leash the Holy Spirit has you on. Whoever can hear that and understand it and it's helpful, God bless you. But understand, we have to have the mind of Christ. We have to be able to broker peace. And Matthew 5, 9 says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So let's be blessed. Let's be peacemakers. Let's restore those who are in conflict and, and, and restore those who jeopardize the unity within the body of Christ. Paul mentioned something in the latter half of verse 3 there. He says, he mentions the book of life. Did you notice that? He says what? Clement, as well as the rest of my fellow workers, so these guys are working together in the leadership structure, he says, whose names are in the book of life. Now, if you don't know, the book of life is a book that when you come to Jesus and you're born again, your name is written in the book of life. And it's because you've become a son or a daughter of God. And and then in the last days when the judgment comes, if your name is not found in the book of life, you have to answer for your sins yourself. If your name is in the book of life, you're under the blood of Jesus, you're forgiven, and Jesus has rectified the issue of your sin, amen? 
So it's a good thing to be in the book of life. <laughs> if you're not in the book of life, I want to give you an opportunity today to get in there and you come by surrendering to Jesus Christ. But he mentions the book of life here, and it's an interesting thing because the implications of that are this. If you're at war with somebody or in conflict with somebody or don't have unity with someone whose name is in the Lamb's book of life, you're fighting your own team. Get this. Well, those people over there at that church, they're going to heaven, same heaven you're going to. I hope they move in next door to you if you're not nice to them. <laughs> Amen. Who's moving into that mansion? Oh, no, it's them. Yeah, you got to look at them for eternity. <laughs> So understand something. If, you, if we're fighting with people whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, this is kind of the implication here. We're, we're fighting our own team. I've mentioned this before. If you see players, a uh, basketball court, two players on the same team fighting over the ball, have you ever seen that? That's the craziest thing. You know, one of the saddest losses we can experience in the, you know, in the military is when people die of what's become known as friendly fire. When someone is killed by their own you know, their, their own unit, their own military. And we've seen this. How many know the name Pat Tillman? Pat Tillman, what, you, know, you know, Pat Tillman was an NFL player, had a, a football career ahead of him. 9-11 happened in that period sometime. He left football. He joined the military. He went through rigorous training, became an Army Ranger, was serving in combat, and was killed by his own brothers at arms. One of the saddest things. And you think, Lord, what a waste. Here's a guy that sacrificed so much to, to defend his country, and he's killed by his own brothers in arms. And as sad as that is, it's exactly the same thing when we try to assassinate other believers whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life because we can't fall in line, because we can't be, you know, we, we want to buck against leadership, we want to fault find. It's quiet now. God help us. Same team. We're on the same team. God, help us not to shoot our wounded and, and, and kill our own. We've got to stop. We need to be one. We need to be united. Verse 4 kind of shifts gears a little bit here. Paul's saying uh, how much he loves everybody. He brings up this rift in the church, tells them, you know, basically uh, how to solve the issue. And he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So, you know, he's talking about all these issues and the conflict, and then all of a sudden he's talking about rejoicing. And it might seem a little out of place there, but really what Paul is saying here, he's mentioning rejoice in this context because rejoicing is the exact prescription for a church that's in conflict. When the body of Christ is in conflict, what do we need to do? Have a summit meeting, talk it out, have a pros and cons list. No, we need to get together in the presence of God and worship the Lord together till the Holy Spirit softens both hearts, amen, until we become one in worship and then we don't, the conflict that we have seems to just many times solve itself. So he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. God does some deep things in the hearts of his people when they worship together. You know, if you're worshiping next to somebody that, you know, you, you have a hard time with and they're worshiping and you, you peek over and you see them and they're oh, like a little angel. I look at my wife worshiping. What an angel. You know, you see them worshiping God and you realize, man, they love God. I love God. All of a sudden your conflict seems petty. 
All of a sudden, the rift seems meaningless. All of a sudden, it gets swallowed up into the goodness of God. If we can worship together, if we can pray together, you know what the best thing to do about somebody who's rotten to you? And let's be honest, there's times people are genuinely mean and rotten to other people. The the best thing we could do is pray for them. You can't stay mad at a person that you're praying for. You can't stay mad at a person that you're worshiping next to. (laughs) I remember when I went to Elam, uh, I was there just a little while. We had chapel all the time. We had assigned seats in chapel. Guess who was assigned to stand next to me? This guy had been standing next to me for all the, and it's like, you know, it's like God puts you together and you see someone's heart and you worship together and you laugh together. God knit your heart together. Amen? And these bonds last. So what's the prescription for a church in conflict? Rejoice, worship, pray, do the things of God together, amen, and God begins to heal the rift. Friendly fire has taken out too many Christians. Friendly fire has wounded too many saints. We're the only army that shoots our own. Help us, Lord. So God wants to knit our hearts together, heal, to restore, to mature us, to make us one, and he does it in the place of worship. So rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Uh, Verse 5 brings these thoughts here down in the section for a landing. He says this, uh, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Paul mentions a gentle spirit. Remember, he's asking the ladies to be humble. He's asking the ladies to lay down their arms. He's asking the leadership to help them find, you know, some balance and unity again. And then he mentions this idea of a gentle spirit. Something that makes believers so attractive to those who are broken and hurting out there in the world is a gentle spirit. You know, we, we could be brash, we could be rude, we could be forceful, but it, it, it never comes across as loving. Generally speaking, aggression is not very attractive. Guys, when you were wooing your, your, your spouse that you eventually married, you'd come to him, I love you very much! You're the apple of my eye. No, John Wayne, you didn't do that. You're all smooth and tender. I have a flower for you. You look lovely today. I remember one time I brought flowers for Kim. I was so excited to give them to her. I was running up the hill to give them to her, and I I tripped and stepped on them and broke the heads off of all the carnations. I still gave them to you, didn't I? It's a thought that counts. But, but generally speaking, aggression is not very attractive. Even people who are overly aggressive about right issues. You know, you can contend so much for something that you become contentious. You know, there's so many Christians out there want to beat people to death with the Bible and quote verses and you're a sinner and blah, 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 blah. That's not how you draw people. That's not how God drew us. His tender mercies, his loving tugs upon our hearts, his relentless pursuit of us, his constant wooing of us. Mm. So here Paul talks about this gentle spirit that we should have. Passion, when it's not gentle, is unattractive. Aggression is never attractive. Arrogant Christians are a huge turnoff to people outside of the faith. 
we're wise to embrace the same tender, loving, humble spirit that Jesus had. Jesus wasn't arrogant. He, he wasn't, even when he was correcting, even, you could see love in the things that he did. Even when he was correcting people, even when, even when he flipped those tables and was chasing people with whips. You know, you could see the love in it. Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Wow. Let us learn from Jesus. And if we're arrogant and we're judgmental and we like to bash people over the head with the Bible, let's remember that that's not the way God drew us. Here's what the church does not need any more of. We don't need peacocks, show ponies, celebrities, slick spiritual salesmen with gimmicks, and we don't need religious merchandisers. You know, we don't need any more of those. Here's what the church does need more of. Genuine, humble, honest people who love Jesus, who love the lost, and who love Jesus more than they love money, fame, pleasure, or power. God, let that be us in these last days here. Let that be us, that we are so in love with you that the things of the world, they, are, they mean nothing to us and that people can see the love and the sincerity we have for them so they'll be willing to hear the good news of the gospel. Let's bow our heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never had an opportunity uh, to uh, say yes to Jesus, the Bible says if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, that God raised Jesus from the dead, we'd be saved. He made it really simple. Confess Jesus is the Savior, receive him, confess that you're a sinner, be forgiven, and become part of the family of God. It's so easy, people miss it. Yet God extends it to us. You say, what will happen if I come to Jesus? Well, he'll forgive your sins. He'll write your names down in the Lamb's book of life. Your eternity will be settled. God can settle your eternity right here today by a decision of your will. He'll give you the power to live a different life by filling you with the Holy Spirit. You see, that sounds great. What does it cost? It doesn't cost us anything. It costs Jesus everything on the cross. We receive it by a decision of our will. If you're here today and you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you want a clean slate and a fresh start, you want to know that if you died today, you'd go to be with the Lord, I want you to lift up your hand today and say, I want to receive Jesus today as my Savior and Lord. Anyone here want to do that? Man, I'm having a hard time. I'm not I'm seeing hands. <laughs> All right, ushers, if you're seeing, God bless you. God bless you. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. Ushers, could you put a packet? And anyone who's raising their hand, put a packet in their hand. God bless you today. <laughs> let's, let's pray a prayer together. Say, Lord Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I receive you as my Savior. And I receive you as my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. From this moment forward, I belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says that the angels in heaven rejoice when we repent and come to the Lord. So let's rejoice with them this morning, amen. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. So I think I'm done. Um, Pastor Mike, why don't you come and...